0: And welcome to the September 2011 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, and I'm here with Sarah Forge. This month, we are pleased to publish the papers from the 47th Respiratory Care Journal Conference, Neonatal and Pediatric Respiratory Care, What Does the Future Hold? We are grateful for the efforts of Rob Blasi and R.S. Shavitz for bringing this conference to fruition.
1: The first paper is Respiratory Research in the Critically Ill Pediatric Patient, Why Is It So Difficult? by Curley. Pediatric clinicians strive to base their management decisions on best available evidence. In the quantitative research paradigm, the highest level of evidence is derived from a conclusive randomized controlled clinical trial. Currently. There are few adequately powered randomized controlled trials to support pediatric acute respiratory care, but this landscape is changing. We are all obliged to ensure the relevance of our research, to mentor junior investigators, and to support knowledge development in our field. This paper reviews the hurdles faced by clinical investigators in the field of pediatric critical care and offers suggestions for future clinical studies.
0: The highest level evidence is the randomized controlled trial. For many aspects of respiratory care, randomized controlled trials are lacking. This is particularly true in neonatal and pediatric respiratory care. When this is the case, we need to use lower levels of evidence. But we should always strive to use the highest level of available evidence in our practice.
1: Our next paper is Management of Acute Lung Injury, Sharing Data Between Adults and Children, by Conference Co-Chair Ira Shifetz. As the basis for this article, it must be acknowledged that children are not simply small adults, but this acknowledgement must go further. Infants are not simply small adolescents. As data for pediatric mechanical ventilation in general and the management for pediatric acute lung injury more specifically are very limited, the pediatric critical care clinician must closely assess the available adult data and evaluate its application for infants and children. Given the hurdles in studying pediatric acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome, clinicians involved with the care of critically ill infants and children are left with extrapolation of data from the neonatal and adult populations, reliance on the limited available pediatric data, careful assessment of the applicable physiologic and pathophysiologic principles, and or reliance on their own experience and their colleagues' experience. Hopefully, with the collaboration of multicenter investigator networks, additional and hopefully definitive pediatric data may be on the horizon. In the meantime, sharing data between adult and pediatric populations seems to be an essential approach to the management of critically ill patients.
0: When high-level evidence is not available for a given patient population, a question that often arises is, can evidence from another population be used? This question is addressed nicely by Shavitz, where he explores sharing of data from neonates and adults to children. Beyond sharing data between adults and children, one could also explore sharing data from other settings, such as from one ethnic group to another. Do the results of the ARGNET trial done in the United States apply to individuals with ARDS in Southeast Asia? Presumably so, but we do not know for certain. We do know that normal values for pulmonary function test results are determined in part by ethnicity. The practical reality is that investigations like the ARGNET study are unlikely to be repeated with multiple age groups and ethnic groups.
1: Our next paper is by the other co-chair of the conference, Rob de Blasi. His paper is Neonatal Non-Invasive Ventilation Techniques – Do We Really Need to Intubate? The current trend is to support neonates with respiratory distress syndrome on CPAP. Nearly half of all neonates who are supported with CPAP will still develop respiratory failure that requires potentially injurious endotracheal intubation and invasive ventilation. Thus, the role of any neonatal clinician is to minimize invasive ventilation whenever possible to avoid the multitude of complications that can arise when using this form of therapy. Non-invasive ventilation is a form of respiratory assistance that provides greater respiratory support than does CPAP and may prevent intubation in a larger fraction of neonates who would otherwise fail CPAP. With the inception of nasal airway interfaces, clinicians have ushered in many different forms of NIV in neonates, often with very little experimental data to guide management. This review will explore in detail all of the different forms of neonatal NIV that are currently focused within an area of intense clinical investigation.
0: Noninvasive ventilation has become standard practice in some groups of adults, such as those with COPD exacerbation and acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. As de Blasi describes in his paper, noninvasive approaches to respiratory support are now commonplace in neonates as well. Several noninvasive approaches are used and de Blasi describes these in detail in his paper.
1: Mechanical ventilation of the premature neonate is by Brown and DeBlossi. Although the trend in neonatal intensive care unit is to use non-invasive ventilation whenever possible, invasive ventilation is still often necessary for supporting preterm neonates with lung disease. Many different ventilation modes and ventilation strategies are available to assist with the optimization of mechanical ventilation and prevention of ventilator-induced lung injury. Patient-triggered ventilation is favored over machine-triggered forms of invasive ventilation for improving gas exchange and patient-ventilator interaction. However, no studies have shown that patient-triggered ventilation improves mortality or morbidity in premature neonates. A promising new form of patient-triggered ventilation, Neurally Adjusted Ventilatory Assist, was recently FDA-approved for invasive and non-invasive ventilation. Clinical trials are underway to evaluate outcomes in neonates who receive this mode. New evidence suggests that volume-targeted ventilation modes, such as volume control or pressure control with adaptive targeting, may provide better lung protection than traditional pressure control modes. Several volume-targeted modes that provide accurate tidal volume delivery in the face of a large endotracheal tube leak were recently introduced to the clinical setting. There is ongoing debate about whether neonates should be managed invasively with high-frequency ventilation or conventional ventilation at birth. The majority of clinical trials performed to date have compared high-frequency ventilation to pressure control modes. Future trials with premature neonates should compare high-frequency ventilation to conventional ventilation with volume-targeted modes. Over the last decade, many new promising approaches to lung protective ventilation have evolved. The key to protecting the neonatal lung during mechanical ventilation is optimizing lung volume and limiting excessive lung expansion by applying appropriate PEEP and using shorter inspiratory time, smaller tidal volume, and permissive hypercapnia. This paper reviews new and established neonatal ventilation modes and strategies and evaluates their impact on neonatal outcomes.
0: There are a number of controversies related to invasive mechanical ventilation in the neonate, and these are nicely covered in this paper. Patient-triggered ventilation and volume-targeted ventilation were not possible in this patient population until recently. Although high-frequency oscillatory ventilation has been available for many years, controversies surrounding its use remain. Regardless of the approach used, a lung-protective ventilation strategy is key.
1: Advances in the management of pediatric pulmonary hypertension is by Oishi and colleagues. Pulmonary hypertension is a rare disease in neonates, infants, and children, and is associated with substantial morbidity and mortality. An adequate understanding of the controlling pathophysiologic mechanisms is lacking. Moreover, a minority of research is focused specifically on neonatal and pediatric populations. Although therapeutic options have increased over the past several decades, they remain limited. In advanced pulmonary hypertension, progressive pulmonary vascular functional and structural changes ultimately cause increased pulmonary vascular impedance, right ventricular failure, and death. Management includes the prevention and or treatment of active pulmonary vasoconstriction, the support of right ventricle function, treatment of the underlying disease if possible, and the promotion of regressive remodeling of structural pulmonary vascular changes. Most currently available therapies augment or inhibit factors or mediators of their downstream signaling cascades that originate in the pulmonary vascular endothelium These pathways include nitric oxide cyclic guanosine monophosphate, prostacyclin, and endothelin-1. The ability to reverse advanced structural changes remains as yet an unattained goal. This paper reviews the epidemiology, pathophysiology, current treatments, and emerging therapies related to neonatal and pediatric pulmonary hypertension.
0: Although pulmonary hypertension is a rare disease, it is associated with substantial morbidity and mortality. It can be an important contributor to respiratory failure in neonates children and adults. Treatment of acute pulmonary hypertension involves the use of inhaled pulmonary vasodilators as discussed later in this issue by Gentile.
1: Our next paper is Resuscitation in the Delivery Room lung protection from the first breath by wiswell resuscitation of newborn infants occurs in approximately ten percent of the more than one hundred million infants born annually worldwide the techniques used during resuscitation such as positive pressure ventilation and supplemental oxygen may revive many children but have the potential to harm their lungs In recent years, increasing attention has been applied to providing lung protection from the first breath. This paper reviews the currently available medical evidence concerning modifying aspects of delivery room management that are thought to mitigate lung injury. These include FiO2 lower than 1, early use of CPAP and PEEP, optimizing pressure and or volume during ventilation, sustained inflations need for and timing of surfactant therapy and airway management of meconium stained amniotic fluid although the evidence against one hundred percent oxygen is of low quality it has been enough to alter the recommendations for oxygen use in the delivery room It is suggested, but not mandated, to use room air initially when resuscitating a term gestation infant and to use FiO2 less than 1 in premature infants with FiO2 adjustments depending on oximetry values. Recent studies have not indicated better outcomes in premature infants in whom CPAP or PEEP is applied in the delivery room. Optimal peak ventilatory pressure and tidal volume have yet to be delineated although an intriguing therapy sustained inflations have not been shown to markedly improve outcomes prophylactic use of surfactant in small premature infants remains the accepted standard Immediate placement on CPAP after surfactant installation has yet to demonstrate clear-cut advantages. Finally, intrapartum oropharyngeal and naropharyngeal suctioning of meconium-stained amniotic fluid does not improve outcomes in meconium-stained infants. Moreover, routine intubation and intratracheal suctioning of apparently vigorous meconium-stained infants does not improve outcomes. In summary, although multiple therapies are touted as protecting the lungs in the delivery room from the first breath, to date, there are scant supportive data.
0: As Wiswell nicely discusses in his paper, some traditional practices during delivery room resuscitation have the potential for harm. Recognition of these potentially injurious practices has led to recommendations such as the use of an FiO2 lower than 1, early use of CPAP and PEEP, optimizing pressure and or volume during ventilation, sustained inflations, the need for and timing of surfactant therapy, and airway management of meconium stained amniotic fluid.
1: Next is the paper by Wilson and Nodder. The Future of Exogenous Surfactant Therapy. Since the identification of surfactant deficiency as the putative cause of infant respiratory distress syndrome by Avery and Mead in 1959, our understanding of the role of pulmonary surfactant in respiratory physiology and the pathophysiology of acute lung injury has advanced substantially surfactant replacement has become routine for prevention and treatment of infant RDS and other causes of neonatal lung injury. The role of surfactant in lung injury beyond the neonatal period, however, has proven more complex. Relative surfactant deficiency, dysfunction, and inhibition all contribute to the disturbed physiology seen in ALI and ARDS. Consequently, exogenous surfactant while a plausible therapy has proven to be less effective in ALI and ARDS than in RDS, where simple deficiency is causative. This failure may relate to a number of factors, among them inadequacy of pharmaceutical surfactants, insufficient dosing or drug delivery, poor drug distribution, or simply an inability of the drug to substantially impact the underlying pathophysiology of ALI and ARDS. Both animal and human studies suggest that direct types of ALI, such as aspiration or pneumonia, may be more responsive to surfactant therapy than indirect lung injuries such as sepsis or pancreatitis. Animal studies are needed, however, to further clarify aspects of drug composition, timing, delivery, and dosing before additional human trials are pursued, as the results of human trials to date have been inconsistent and largely disappointing. Further study, and perhaps the development of more robust pharmaceutical surfactants, offer promise that exogenous surfactant will find a place in our armamentarium of treatment of ALI and ARDS in the future.
0: Surfactant replacement therapy is used routinely in the treatment of respiratory distress syndrome in neonates. However, the evidence supporting use of surfactant replacement therapy in children and adults with ARDS is much less robust. In fact, randomized controlled trials to date of surfactant replacement therapy in adults with ARDS have been negative. Relating back to the paper by Chavitz, perhaps this is an area where data from neonates cannot be shared with adults.
1: inhaled medical gases more to breathe than oxygen is by Gentile. The mixture of oxygen and nitrogen is usually sufficient to achieve the therapeutic objective of supporting adequate gas exchange. Pediatric and neonatal patients have an assortment of physiologic conditions that may require adjunctive inhaled gases to treat the wide variety of diseases seen in this heterogeneous population. Inhaled nitric oxide helium oxygen mixtures inhaled anesthetics hypercarbic mixtures hypoxic mixtures inhaled carbon monoxide and hydrogen sulfide have been used to alter physiology in an attempt to understand patient outcomes balancing the therapeutic potential possible adverse effects, and the complexity of the technical aspects of gas delivery, it is essential that clinicians thoroughly understand the application of medical gas therapy beyond the traditional nitrogen-oxygen mixture.
0: As Gentile nicely describes, there are now many gases that can be administered by inhalation. This is typically a topic of excitement and enthusiasm for respiratory therapists. The evidence supporting the use of these inhaled gases is variable. Some are in relatively common use in neonates and children, whereas others are investigational at this time. Balancing the potential benefit of these gases is the potential to do harm and the associated costs.
1: Next, we have the paper, Asthma 2015 and Beyond by Myers and Tomasio asthma is a multifactorial chronic inflammatory disease of the airways the knowledge that asthma is an inflammatory disorder has become a core fundamental in the definition of asthma asthma's chief features include a variable degree of airflow obstruction and bronchial hyperresponsiveness, in addition to the underlying chronic airways inflammation this underlying chronic airway inflammation of asthma substantially contributes to airway hyperresponsiveness, airflow limitation, respiratory symptoms and disease chronicity. However, this underlying chronic airway inflammation of asthma has implications for the diagnosis, management and potential prevention of the disease. This review of asthma for the respiratory therapy community summarizes these developments as well as those things on the short-term horizon, including an update on asthma epidemiology, natural history, cause, and pathogenesis. This paper also provides an overview on appropriate diagnostic and monitoring strategies for asthma, pharmacology, and newer therapies for the future as well as relevant management of acute and ambulatory asthma, and a brief review of educational approaches.
0: Care of the patient with asthma is a fundamental aspect of respiratory care practice. This is a well-written, comprehensive review of recent developments in the care of patients with asthma, as well as an update on asthma epidemiology, natural history, cause, and pathogenesis. It is a must-read for any respiratory therapist involved in the care of patients with asthma.
1: Pediatric Aerosol Therapy, New Devices and New Drugs is by Rubin. The lungs and conducting airways are ideal portals for drug delivery. The airways are easily accessible by oral or nasal inhalation, the airway and alveolar surface is large, allowing for drug dispersion, and many drugs do not cross the airway blood barrier, permitting the use of higher topical drug doses for airway disease than would be practical with systemic administration. On the other hand, alveolar deposition of drugs allows rapid absorption into the pulmonary circulation and back to the left heart and systemic distribution, bypassing the intestinal tract and liver inactivation. Recently, there have been a feast of new aerosol devices and drug formulations that promise the effective delivery of amazing array of medications far beyond pressurized meter dose inhalers and nebulizers and asthma medications.
0: This paper is a logical follow-up to the paper on asthma by Myers. However, as Rubin points out, aerosol therapy is now much more than just bronchodilator therapy. There are a number of new formulations and devices available for aerosol therapy. It is imperative that respiratory therapists are knowledgeable about these formulations and the use of these devices, as it will often fall on the shoulders of the therapist to provide the necessary patient education.
1: Next is the paper by Walsh and colleagues, Pediatric Airway Maintenance and Clearance in the Acute Care Setting, How to Stay Out of Trouble. Traditional airway maintenance and clearance therapy and principles of application are similar for neonates, children, and adults, yet there are distinct differences in physiology and pathology between children and adults, which limit the routine application of adult derived airway clearance techniques in children. This paper focuses on airway clearance techniques and airway maintenance in the pediatric patient with acute respiratory disease, specifically those used in the hospital environment, prevailing lung characteristics that may arise during exacerbations, and the differences in physiologic processes unique to infants and children. One of the staples of respiratory care has been chest physiotherapy and postural drainage. Many new airway clearance and maintenance techniques have evolved, but few have demonstrated true efficacy in the pediatric patient population. Much of this is probably due to the limited ability to assess outcome and or choose a proper disease-specific or age-specific modality. Airway clearance techniques consume a substantial amount of time and equipment. Available disease-specific evidence of airway clearance techniques and airway management will be discussed whenever possible. Unfortunately, more questions than answers remain.
0: There may be no respiratory therapy procedures besides airway clearance therapy that bring forth as much emotion by respiratory therapists, patients, and families. While no one debates the value of airway clearance, unfortunately, high-level evidence is not available to guide the selection of a specific therapy for an individual patient. Thus, the selection of an airway clearance therapy is often based on clinician or patient or family bias and selection of a therapy for which a patient is adherent.
1: Extracorporeal life support, moving at the speed of light, is by Dalton. Extracorporeal life support, or ECLS, or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO, as it is also known, has been used to support over 45,000 patients to date. Overall survival is 62%. After many years of no change in equipment or technology, there has been a recent flurry of new pumps, cannulas, and oxygenators available for ECLS use. While the impact of this new technology is not completely defined, initial results have found that these systems provide safe support with lower priming volumes and less bleeding complications. New cannulas are also available, some making it easier for veno-venous support in patients from infants through adults. The reported success of ECLS in patients with H1N1 during the 2009-2010 epidemic and the improved survival of patients randomized to an ECMO arm of a recently completed adult study of respiratory failure have also brought ECLS into the spotlight much more than in other years. Whether these developments will usher in a new era of ECLS expansion to a wider range of patients will require close consideration and observation. Other areas that need to be further refined include anticoagulation, management, treatment of bleeding complications, learning to nurse patients in an awake state, such as is done in some European and a few United States centers, and neurodevelopmental outcome on a long-term basis.
0: In recent years, there has been a resurgence of interest in the use of ECLS, commonly called ECMO, in children and adults. However, the evidence remains largely anecdotal. A recently established randomized controlled study did report benefit in adults with ARDS, but the methodology of this study has been questioned. One thing that is certain is that new pumps, cannulas, and oxygenators have made the practice of ECMO less complicated. The role of ECMO outside the neonatal setting remains to be determined.
1: The final paper from the conference is Disaster Planning for Pediatrics by Branson. Natural and man-made disasters are inevitable and appear to be more common in the current age. Substantial time and effort have been invested and millions of dollars spent on disaster prevention and management. An important oversight in this planning has been the special needs of children. The nature of the vulnerability of children and physiologic characteristics place them at an increased risk during a disaster. Importantly, reunification with family and assurance of safety in this vulnerable group is a priority. This paper addresses issues related to pediatric needs, the medical system shortcomings in caring for children, and recommendations for action.
0: As Branson explains, the needs of children in disaster planning should not be ignored. Even when the needs of children are considered, the needs of the family unit may not be adequately addressed. For example, the reunification of the child with the family needs to be considered. Anyone with responsibility for disaster planning will find much value in this paper. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.